Amen. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon us this morning as we seek to better understand his word. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to know that we are those redeemed, we are those restored, that we are those forgiven through Jesus and his precious, precious blood. We thank you, Lord, for the for the prayers that we are able to pray in, in Christ. And we thank you for the songs that we are able to sing in Christ. Most of all, we just thank you for the message that comes in your word that is of Christ. We pray that we would know him and in knowing him, that we would worship him and worship him we would pray and sing with a new sense and a new fervor and a new passion because we have come to know and love him all the more. So we pray this morning that by your spirit you would come and not only inhabit our praises, Lord, and not only receive our prayers, but open our ears that we might hear Christ. Open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Open our hearts. We might receive him and he become even a new Christ to us. This morning, even this moment. Teach us, Heavenly Father, by your spirit. We will have been taught. Do this according to your word and in your will. We pray in Jesus. Amen. You know, they tell us that there are some <clears throat> 7 billion people in the world. 7 billion people. Of those 7 billion people, they tell us that over 2 billion claim to be Christian. 2 billion. That's, that's, that's nearly... One-third of all the people in the world claiming to be Christian. Now, really, really, if, if, if that was true, you would think that the world would be a much different place. But nevertheless, there are, uh, there are over two billion people who claim at some point, to some degree, an allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the number of over 2 billion Christians kind of begs the question of what do they mean by Christian? I mean, how do we qualify what it means to be a Christian? And yet, according to these numbers, the world is full of those who claim to be followers of Christ. Think about that. Two, over two billion people. And that's interesting because where else in the world, where else in humanity can you go and find on a weekly basis thousands upon tens of thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people gathering in one place doing the same thing week in and week out? Except for Jesus, 
being proclaimed. You know, the largest church in Atlanta is North Point, claiming some 25,000 attendees every week. Largest church in America is Lakewood in Houston, Texas, claiming some 45,000 people in attendance every week. 25,000 for North Point, 45,000 for Lakewood. But in comparison to Yordo Full Gospel Church in South Korea, North Point and Lakewood are but small groups. Well, Yordo Full Gospel Church in South Korea boasts one million attendees every week. That's right. One million people. These numbers are amazing. Even in our world, they are staggering. But they should not encourage us too much because as we see in our text, Jesus always draws a crowd. Jesus sails. People flock to Jesus. The nice, the meek, the humble, the healing, the comforting Jesus always sails. People always flock to hear what Jesus will do for them. So it was in Jesus' own day, so it is in our day. Yet our text should be a reminder to us and even a warning as well. Just as in Jesus' day as they flocked to him and just as in our day people flock to these places that they call churches. Everyone talking about heaven ain't going. And everyone saying they know Jesus don't know him. what we see here in our text should be a sober reminder to us Jesus himself understood this the Bible says that Jesus sought to withdraw himself from the crowds notice something as we've come here to this point in the gospel of Mark Jesus now has his huge reputation and he needs to get away He needs to get away. Why? He needs to get away because of these huge crowds. All of these people are flocking to Jesus. These large crowds. Jesus was a rock star. And yet while today we're trying to draw large crowds, Jesus is trying to get away from them. So it is. We come to our text this morning and we see, biblically speaking, the nature of kingdom crowds. They're made up of large number of people. They're made up of demons. 
But in there, Jesus always finds true disciples. These large crowds flocking to Jesus. Within those large crowds, there's always Satan and his minions. But within those large crowds, Jesus always calls out and has his faithful disciples. Let's look at these kingdom crowds this this morning and see if they might instruct us even in our day on how we might determine and discern the nature of kingdom crowds today. Notice that the Bible says that there was a large crowd that followed Christ. Christ withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. A large crowd, a great number of people. And it just wasn't one demographic. I mean, they came from everywhere. They came from miles and miles around. Estimating some hundred square miles of folks coming to where Jesus is. Now, that might not seem much to you and I, but they didn't have Marta. There was no motorized transportation. For people to be coming from over a hundred miles away and gathering to see Jesus, it takes some effort, it takes some intention. They're coming from a variety of areas. But not only is there a variety of places, there are a variety of faces. These people are not all the same. They're coming from Jewish territories. They're coming from Gentile territories. And they're coming from territories that were mixed with Jews and Gentiles. They're coming from everywhere. There's all types of people from all types of places. And they're pressing in on Jesus. They're pressing in on Jesus. They're mobbing Jesus. So much so that Jesus instructs his disciples, get me a getaway boat. Prepare the getaway boat because something is telling me we're going to need to get out of here and we're going to need to have to get out of here fast. They're mobbing him like some of you might have mobbed the Beatles. (laughs) I don't mention any names. Some of you might have mobbed Michael Jackson. They're mobbing. They're pressing in on him. Why did they come? The Bible says they came because they heard all that Jesus was doing. They heard of all the miracles. They heard of the exorcisms. They heard of the healings. And they came, they came, and they came, and they came, and they pressed up upon Jesus. Unlike the scribes and unlike the Pharisees, these crowds are not antagonistic to Jesus. They're loving Christ. They're loving Christ because they're loving what Christ could do for them. But Christ isn't impressed. Christ isn't impressed. 
Christ is never impressed with the crowds, beloved. We might be. He never is. He's not impressed with the crowd because he knows those who make up the crowds. See that in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Jesus is not impressed with the crowds. The Bible says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And notice what the Bible says. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is not impressed with the crowd because Jesus knows those who make up the crowd. Jesus knows that the crowd is fickle. That the crowd loves to chase the latest fad. That the, that the crowd is always looking for the new and best thing. He knows that the crowd is fickle. And he knows that the larger the crowd, the more fickle it is. They easily manipulate it. Yeah, those who in Luke chapter 19 and verse 38 who would be praising Jesus on one day and just a little while later in Luke chapter 23 and verse 21, they are are crying out for his crucifixion the next. He knows them. They are those who in John chapter 6 are being fed with bread and rejoicing in Christ. And then by the end of chapter 6, they are leaving and rejecting Christ because they don't want the bread of life. They're fickle. They're chasing the latest fad. They're governed by their bellies. They're looking for the most exciting thing. They're looking for the newest revelations. They're chasing the lights and the glitter and the action. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. You know, they asked asked, uh, Yogi Berra about going to Disneyland, and and Yogi Berra said, nobody goes to Disneyland. There's too many people there. (laughs) Nobody goes because there's too many people there. It's the nature of the crowd. Nobody goes because everybody's there. The crowd will live for Jesus while Jesus is giving them what they want. But when Jesus commands allegiance, when Jesus commands worship, not temporary, but of at all times, well, the crowd is reminded that it doesn't take all that. This is a word of admonishment to us this morning. Are we just one in the crowd this morning? 
because we want something from Jesus. Are we simply impressed with this idea of Christianity because we heard it will fix my marriage? Because I heard that I could hopefully get a cure for my cancer. Because I heard that they will pray for me and I might get a job. You come to Jesus because you are hearing what Jesus might do for you or have you come this morning because you want Jesus? Jesus is not impressed with those who simply come because they want Jesus, because they want what Jesus can do. Jesus is not impressed with those who just simply come to touch him. For those who truly, truly, truly want Jesus are those who desire for Jesus to touch them. You know, I saw a sign not too long ago on, on the billboard at a church just said two words. It said, try Jesus. Try Jesus. As if Jesus is some automobile that you take out for a test drive. Try Jesus. You don't try Jesus, beloved. There's no testing period in the things of God. Jesus did not come into the world so that you might examine him and determine whether or not he is true. And Christ comes in the world to examine us and discerns the intents of human hearts and shows us that at our base and core, we are wicked. And to be despised, unworthy of his goodness, unworthy of his mercy, unworthy of his grace. You don't try Jesus. You bow down to Jesus. And he tries you. crowd wanted to touch Jesus, but they didn't know who he was. Did you notice something? The demons knew who he was, and they weren't trying to touch him. Notice what it says. The demons, when they came, they bowed down and the demons were reminded and they cried out, you are the son of God. You know, we're going to spend more time on the demonic once we get to chapter 5. But I just want to just highlight a couple of things for your thoughts this morning concerning this encounter with Christ. Again, again, 
the demons recognize who Christ is, even when those around him don't, for they know that he is the Son of God. But once again, as in chapter 1, Jesus is not interested in their testimony. Jesus is not interested in their witness, and so he rebukes them. He censors them. He gives them a sovereign command. A command that evidences his divine power and authority over creation. All of creation. Inanimate, inanimate. He rebukes them. He subdues them. He demonstrates that he has power to not only subdue, but to subjugate. All powers and authority in the world. So he forbids them to speak anything further. As we saw in in Mark chapter 1 and verse 25, when the demons determined that they, they, they were going to give testimony to who Jesus was, Jesus tells them to shut up, rebukes them. Why? Because the demons had knowledge of Christ, but the demons were not interested in trusting in Christ. Christ is not interested in those who have knowledge but no trust. It's not enough. It's not enough simply just to know who Jesus is. You must move from knowledge into trusting who Jesus is. Christ is not interested, beloved. And those who know who he is but will not place their trust in him. Those who know who Jesus is and don't put their trust in him, their knowledge is in vain. It is useless. It is vanity of all vanities. And Jesus himself, in quoting from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13 said this, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Here are the demons seeking to honor Christ with their words, but know that their hearts and their beings are far from him. And Christ is not interested in that type of testimony. From demons, from you, and from me. It's not enough to simply honor Christ with our lips, but we must honor him with our hearts, even our lives. In the crowd of people, there were the demons. But even in the crowd, Jesus was there gathered with his disciples. So we see, moving on in the text, that Jesus got away from the crowd. He moved away from the crowd. He moved away from the demons by going up on a mountain and calling to himself only those whom he desired to be with him. Notice, he moved away from the crowds. He left the crowds, went up on the mountains, and called unto himself only those whom he desired to be with him. How many people did he call up on the mountain? 
Mark doesn't tell us how many he called, but this account given in Luke reminds us that Jesus called quite a few people up on the mountain. It wasn't just the 12 that went up on the mountain that day with Jesus. There were quite a few disciples because even within the crowd, Jesus knew that there were those who were interested in truly heeding his call. We know there were more than 12 other disciples because later on we will see that Jesus sends out 70 disciples. So Luke seems to remind us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13, there were more than just these 12. And yet even out of those called upon the mountain, Jesus chose 12. Whom he desired. And they came. And they came. Why 12? What is the message that the scriptures is giving us here with this 12? Well, we need to understand as we've seen before that Jesus is here establishing a new order. That he is establishing a new reality. That he is establishing the kingdom of God that shall be upon the earth forever and ever. And that new reality reflective of the old reality, though greater than the old reality. So he calls 12. Reminiscent of the fact that God had initially called 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus in establishing a new reality, in establishing a new Israel cause. Twelve. He calls twelve and establishes them as the apostles, as it tells us in the scriptures that they would become the foundations of the church. Here we see, beloved, the church in miniature. And Jesus has called his people upon the mountain. And here we see in seed form, in miniature, as it was the church of Jesus Christ. And to examine the disciples as they are called and set apart is to get a glimpse into the church itself. And what a wonderful and glorious glimpse it is. It's five characteristics here to these disciples. They give us five of the characteristics of the church in which those who are called today find themselves in. Five characteristics. And the first one is that they are called. Well, that's the church. The church is those who are called. And these disciples were called. He summoned them. And he summoned those whom he will. He summoned them. He willed them to come and they came. One commentator put it like this. Disciples do not decide to follow Jesus as if to do him a favor in doing so. No. But he supersedes their will. And they come because he has called. And he calls them. Well, that is the church, beloved. The church is the called assembly of God. 
The assembly of those who have been called like the disciples out from the crowd, out from the world, and have been called and set apart for service, or better yet, to be with Jesus. It's the call that makes the difference. It's the call. God is always called. He called Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, out from the pagan land of his fathers, out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. He called. He called Israel. In Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, out of Egypt. He called. If you are a Christian this morning, It is not because you willed. It is not because you ran. It is not because you wished. It's because he called. That is the glory blessed. That is the glorious blessing of all those who name the name of Christ. Is that they have been called. That is, comfort, that is the comfort, that is the security, that is the assurance of those who are in Christ. It is the assurance that they know that I have been called. And why is that such a blessing? Why is that such a good thing? Because the Bible says that is such a blessing and that is such a good thing. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are what? Called according to his purposes. Not for everybody. Not for all the large crowds. For those who have been called and called they know to be with Jesus. They don't come because they're looking for Jesus to do something for them. They come because they have been called and they can't help but come. So you go back to the crowd and you ask the crowd, why are you here? And the crowd says, we're here because we heard Jesus is doing some miracles. But then you go to the disciples on the mountain and say, why are you here? And they say, we're here because he called. I don't know. He called me. And I came. I couldn't help but come. Woe unto me if I didn't come. My heart burned in me. And I found pleasure in nothing else. But that his voice spoke to me. And so I came. Matthew Henry says, those whom he calls, he makes willing to come. And you know what they do? They come. They come. 
That is the nature of the disciples, but that's the nature of the church. The church are those who are called. But not only are those the church, those who call the church is those who are commissioned. For those called are those who are sent. For Jesus called his disciples unto him to be with him so that they might do what? They might go and preach. That's it. He calls us to him, and in calling us, he instructs us in the ways of the kingdom, of the glory of God, the necessity of faith in Christ and repentance from sins. And he says, now go and proclaim the kingdom of God by faith in Christ and repentance from sin. He's going to commission them to preach. And the reason why in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, that is called the Great Commission, is because that is the reason that Jesus has called his disciples, so that eventually they would go out into the world and proclaim him. Notice what it says. Notice the parallels between this calling and the commissioning in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. And where did they go? They went up on a mountain. Because Jesus once again, as he had at first, so he now at last calls them up to the mountain. And why do they go? Because he called. He calls them once again up to the mountain, and he directed them. And here is his directions. All authority on heaven and earth are given to, has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. This is the commission that he gives them before he leaves But this is the reason why he called them in the first place. To commission them. To teach them. So that they would go and proclaim the kingdom. The church is called. The church is commissioned. Then you see by looking at the apostles that the church is also those who are empowered. But Jesus not only calls these disciples unto himself and commissions them, but he empowers them. He gives them power, authority, the Bible says, authority and the power to act in his stead. A power and authority over the ways and the means of the demonic. Satan himself. And while this authority rests primarily with the apostles, beloved, the church even today, the faithful church of Jesus Christ, is still a stronghold in the world. It is still a light in the midst of darkness. It is still an ever-expanding reality into a dark world, taking territory 
one soul, one mind, one heart at a time. You know, it's in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus tells Peter that he's going to build his church and he gives Peter this promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why? Because I have not only called, I have not only commissioned, but I have empowered her. And ultimately, she shall be the end and the ruin of Satan himself. Notice that the message is Christ that they preach. The power is Christ that they displayed. This is the church. This is disciples. They are called. They are commissioned. And they are empowered. But there's another reality here. These are those who are united. The church is united, not only called to be with Christ, but they are also called to be with each other's. They are called to be with each other's. The disciples are going to learn that they don't do it alone. You ever notice that? Whenever the disciples got on their own is when they got in trouble. Judas out on his own, Peter out on his own. And when God calls his people, he calls them to be not only with him, but with each other. When you think about it, this is remarkable. For apart from Christ, this group would have never been together. Never. Apart from Christ, this group would have never found each other. Think about it. Simon the Zealot, he's a terrorist. He's a gangbanger. Matthew, Levi, was a government employee. Rather than fellowshipping with Levi, Simon would have tried to slit his throat. Peter, probably one of the elder statesmen, and John, one of the younger teenagers in the group, they would have never hung out together. And yet... In the book of Acts, you, you rarely hear of Peter, but you don't also hear of John. They were all united around a common, all-surpassing reality, and that was Jesus Christ. That was Jesus Christ. This is so instructive for us, beloved. I want to show you something this morning. My wife is fond of telling me that I'm different. So you think different. You're just different. Tell me something I don't know. 
I know I'm different, but guess what? We all different. We all think different. We all act different. We all like different things. Everybody is different. So were the 12. Sinclair Ferguson says, there were no clones in the group. They were all different. You look around you this morning. Everybody's different. Quirky. Sinful. Hard to get along with. Emotionally unstable. And apart from the all-surpassing reality of Jesus Christ, I am quite sure that I would not be in fellowship with most of you in here. There are very few of you who would have ran in my circle. Maybe more. Maybe. If he could keep up. And beloved, the thing that unites us is not that we like the same clothes or not that we like the same music or not that we have the same views on political things. It's not that we all put our hair in the same way and we want to live in the same neighborhood. The thing that unites us is the all-surpassing reality that Jesus has called us. And not only to be with him, but he has called us to be with each other. I'd delight to put up with your quirkiness and your wrong ideas. This, beloved, in a reality then, in the things that really matters most, we are not different. We are the same. Because we have a singular pursuit, and that is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And in fact, if that is not your pursuit and desire this morning, then you're the one who's different. And because of Christ, we've all been called. And in that sense, we're all the same. And desire not only to be with him, but desire to be with each other. And I am quite confident that some of the dearest people in my life, I would have never come to know and enjoy apart from knowing them. In Christ Jesus. So that's the nature, that's the apostles. They're, they're not only those who are called and those who are commissioned and those who are empowered, but they are those who are united. But not just united, beloved. Here's another thing. They are those who are unlikely. Unlikely. They are just unlikely. The church is made up by and large of people who are of little significance to the world. 
I mean, you think about it. If you are going to start and begin an organization that is going to have world and everlasting impact, these guys probably are not the ones you would want to choose. Now, look at Peter. Peter denies Christ. Judas. Judas betrays Christ. You see, James and John are impetuous, quick-tempered, full of ambition, self-promotion and self-conceit. Simon the Zealot is a terrorist. Matthew is a crook. Thomas is slow to believe. All of them, all of them at some point demonstrate moments of fear, of doubt, of having very little faith. Not the type of people you'd really want to start a kind of a world-impacting organization with. But then you look around East Point Church this morning and you see some of the same things. Oh, if we only knew where you have come from. Oh, if we would only be able to rehearse where you have been. You too would be an unlikely candidate for kingdom, world, impacting. This is who Jesus calls, beloved. We've heard it before, but maybe we need to hear it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then again in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, You are in Christ Jesus. Unlikely as it is, you are here. Those who know you best would say that according to where you've come from, you are the least one that should be called. And yet, he who truly knows you best knows because of where you have been, you are the most qualified to receive his call. Because you will know you have nothing of which to boast. You have nothing of which to be made up much of. 
But if you are called by Christ Jesus this morning into his kingdom, into the glories of his church, it is because of his grace and his mercy and his love and his grace and mercy and love alone. You come, beloved, into East Point Church. Be reminded that there are no big eyes in here. There's only a big hymn. It's all about Jesus. You know who was the most unlikely of all? It's the Apostle Paul. And you know who knew he was the most unlikely of all? It was the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, For I am least of all the apostles. You, you're kidding me, right, Paul? No, I understand. I am least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You do understand, beloved, that Paul knew that he had no legitimate place in the things of Christ. In and of himself, he was the most unworthy of all the apostles. But then he said something that ought to bring a comfort and joy to all of our hearts. Where he says, but it's by the grace of God that I am who I am. It's by the grace of God that I've been called into his church. It's by the grace of God that I have been commissioned with the message of Christ. It is by the grace of God that I have been empowered to over sin and authorities in my life. It's by the grace of God that I am united with those who I once hated. It is by the grace of God that the, un, the most unlikely of all people is now the recipient of the glorious grace of God. By his grace, his grace alone. Beloved, don't come to East Point Church because of me. Don't come to East Point Church because of anyone. Don't come to East Point Church because you see a crowd gathering. I wouldn't follow the crowd in the world. I definitely wouldn't follow a crowd who's hooping and hollering about Jesus. Don't follow a crowd. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. Don't come to this church because we call you to come. Come because Christ calls you to come. And if that's the case, beloved, you come.
you come. You come with all your quirks. You come with all your differences. You come with all your idiosyncrasies.